we start this week's chat, we have got a brand new sponsor for Series 5 who I just have to tell you about because I am so, so excited about working with them this year. If you haven't heard of Plio, they are the multi-award winning business spending solution built for forward-thinking teams that have completely changed the business expenses game for the better and made our lives as business owners and our team's lives a whole lot easier. It was basically launched in Copenhagen by two founders who thought that the old way of managing business expenses was a bit rubbish. And I'm sure that you'll agree, I don't blame them. You know what it's like at the moment. Your team needs to buy something and you will scramble to share the company credit card around. You're WhatsApping card details to one another. You will waste so much time filing expense reports for every little thing. When you say it out loud, it's not exactly the smartest way for a growing business to work, is it? Which is why Yepa and Niccolo built Plio in 2015. To keep it short and sweet, Plio's cards make it easy for people to buy what they need for work without the red tape and save you, or I should say us, your team and freelancers so much time because there is no need for expense reports or random invoices. You just give everyone a Plio card and you can see who's spending what as it comes in. There's also no need to hold on to piles of receipts anymore too because Plio will automate all of that and the very best bit is that they sync with all the usual accounting software apps as well so that you know that everything is being reconciled in the right way. For me personally, even though I don't have an official team as you all know, Plio appeals because I can now send my VA Lisa and the team of freelancers I work with a card each so that we can now skip all the back and forth over card details and random invoices as and when they need to buy something for the business on my behalf. Even silly things like when we're back on the midweek mingle road shows and we're traveling again, I know full well that Chloe will need to nip out and buy extra snacks. So I can now give her a Plio card so that we don't have to faff around with invoices when we're home. Basically, it's a game changer and it wouldn't have won as many awards as it has done if it wasn't as good as it is. The best bit, they are offering all she can she did listeners if you're a new customer, your first three months of Plio for free. Just head to plio.io to set up a demo using the link in the show notes and be sure to mention the She Can She Did podcast when prompted. A giant, giant thank you to Plio for their support of She Can, She Did, and also for handing the mic over to some amazing business owners who just so happen to be members of She Can, She Did in the middle of this episode too. What absolute legends they are, they are so unbelievably supportive, but that is enough of me rambling. Let's get started with today's episode. everyone and welcome back to the She Can, She Did podcast. The podcast in which I, Fiona Grayson, sit down with smart, driven, beyond inspiring business owners dotted all over the UK and ask them to open up to me about the candid reality that they've pushed through behind the scenes. Warts and all, of course, to not just launch, but run, grow and sustain their business to date. The overarching aim being to encourage both current and aspiring business owners that if the women that I'm chatting to each week can overcome and did overcome the setbacks they faced, and believe me, not one woman will say that she's had it easy on here, you can and you will overcome whatever challenges this running a business malarkey chucks your way to. This week, I am chatting to a woman who I was first introduced to on a panel that I'd been asked to moderate at a women's leadership conference hosted in London back in 2019, when big conferences with lots of people close together were a thing, that is. She happened to be speaking on the panel, we met, realised that we had a mutual friend in common, and I have been in awe of her work and her story ever since. 
The lady in question is Amber Cowburn, a multi-award winning mental health awareness advisor and trainer who, after nearly a decade working in the mental health and well-being space, founded her own company, Working Well, in 2019. Having been honoured with numerous national accolades, including We Are The City's Rising Star Entrepreneur Award last year, the Diana Award in 2019, the Prime Minister's Point of Light Award in 2018, and a Rotary National Community Champion Award too, Amber is also a proud founding trustee of the Invictus Trust charity that her and her family set up in early 2011, in memory of her older brother Ben, who sadly took his own life in late 2010. From how she navigated the stigma attached to mental health in the early years, given that the national conversation around mental health didn't really open up until 2016-2017-ish, the uncomfortable journey she's been on when it comes to putting a price on her services, and what she would do differently with certain contracts in hindsight, to how she went about marketing working well and securing amazing corporate clients without the help of the usual suspects like Instagram, not to mention the lessons the past 12 months have taught her about both business and life of course. I have a feeling we can all learn so so much from this one. This is Amber's incredible story so far. Amber, it's Friday afternoon. We were saying earlier, like I feel like I was saying at the beginning of the week, it's such a great time to chat Friday afternoon. I was actually thinking earlier, Who books a podcast chat in on a Friday (laughs) afternoon when everyone's absolutely knackered? But having said that, I am really genuinely looking forward to this. I just don't know how my words are going to come out. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) We'll roll with it. Please, can you do us all a favour and let us know what your business is about in your own words? And as always, for Series 5, we will go from there. Sure. So I'm Amber Coburn and I run a business called Working Well. And Working Well is a mental health training and consultancy company. So my job is to work with businesses, sometimes with individuals with very small businesses, sometimes with really large businesses with lots of teams and work on bespoke training packages for them to increase their mental health awareness. And also things like audit what they're currently doing, talk with their staff. And the consultancy side is about finding bespoke solutions for those workplaces. And the training side is more about increasing everyone's awareness. That, in a nutshell, is what I do. Amazing. Not much then. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking earlier, we met, because Catherine introduced us, didn't she? Yeah. We met in, it just feels like a lifetime ago, at a live event. We did in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was it on? Like a corporate, like, women? Yeah, it was management accountants, but they were all women. And it was like their European summit. I was called into a mental health talk and I actually was still in full-time employment at that point but was running my business on the side and I went fully independent like a couple of weeks later so it was kind of a real pivotal time for me actually. Well that leads quite nicely into just kind of if you were juggling the two at the time like where did working well come from like what inspired you to launch your own business this like concept of being your own boss? Yeah so firstly I think the idea of being my own boss has been something that has felt very natural to me since I was really young because my mum was her own boss. So I modelled that from my mum and I feel really lucky that I have a parent who that was her whole life, you know, building her business, going it alone. And my dad as well was a consultant and then worked with my mum. So he also has that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And I think it was just instilled in me, like growing up, I just watched my mum run the show, like with her own business. And I just thought that that was not normal, but just like 
such a cool, brilliant thing. Like I just loved it. And, and I think you, you know, you know, you can be what you can see. So I just always felt like I could do that. And then in terms of the subject area, like it being about mental health, that's a long journey. So that takes us back like 10 years and it's been a, a long kind of thing in the process. So, you know, back in when I was 17, 16, 17, my brother got really poorly. And after three months, very, very short time of, of very acute suffering, he really tragically took his own life. And it turned our lives absolutely upside down as a family. And obviously, I was late teens, had led a very comfortable, happy life. And it just turned everything upside down, but also was such an unknown to me. Like I didn't know anything about mental illness. I didn't know anything about mental health. This was 2010. It wasn't being talked about. It was something that was still so taboo. And I think like when I take myself back to then, it was so, so taboo. It's kind of hard to remember that. We just weren't talking about it at all. And I know even now, 10 years on, like so much has changed and there are still a significant stigmas, but like the conversation is there. And, and I think I felt a great deal of guilt, even as a young person that I didn't know and I didn't know what my brother was going through and I didn't know how to help him and I was scared. And that led us as a family to set up a charity in his memory. And the whole thing was, if we could just help one other young person, if we could just provide some resources, if we could just talk about this in normal language at normal events, not doctors in white coats, you know, and, and just bring this to the forefront. So that's where that all came from. We set up the Invictus Trust in his memory. And that was a really amazing process. Obviously, one that was absolutely came from tragedy and was so difficult at times. But we used Ben's tattoos to create the branding of the charity. And we wanted a brand that young people would gravitate towards, not a charity. Not, you know, we didn't want to make my brother into a charity case. He was this mega cool fashion student. Everybody loved him. Life was all at the party. And it was like, hey, if we're going to do this in Ben's memory, it's got to be cool. Like he would have approved. And that's kind of our marker for everything we did. Like, would Ben go to this event? Would he wear this T-shirt? <laughs> Would he like this logo? And that's how we built it. And back in 2011, by now, you know, that was pretty groundbreaking. Like people weren't doing that then. So we would have parties and events, get young people into spaces and talk about mental health and, and raise money and, and raise awareness. I mean, firstly, I'm so sorry about what you've been through as a family. Yeah, I can only imagine how heartbreaking that is. But like you said, I have no doubt Ben would be so proud of everything that you have gone on because it is everything you say it just resonates and I'm just trying to think I in my old job I looked after our charity partnership with Mind and I remember being there after uni so 2014 23 no 2014 I started there and I remember in 2016 I ran the London Marathon and it was that at the end of that race that Kate and Will launched the Heads Together campaign and I remember for the whole conversation at work about mental health, suddenly we were pushing, you know, our partnership with Mind. And then when Kate and Will launched Heads Together, people started getting it. And oh, it was yeah. just a conversation. I remember just seeing how, and it's just bonkers to me that that was only a few years ago, but it wasn't yeah. until then. But like you said, yeah, to 2010, no one was talking about mental yeah. health. Nobody. And you had a couple of really outspoken people who were, that was Stephen Fry. That was Ruby Wax. They weren't people who were appealing to young people. Mm. So maybe that conversation was coming through in some channels if you were like middle class or middle aged, but it wasn't coming through to young people. People didn't want to talk about it. They were terrified of the subject. It was not cool. It was scary. You know, all of those things. And it still scares people. Like, don't get me wrong. It's an emotive topic. And I don't think we can downplay it to the point that it isn't. 
but yeah, you're right. Like the Heads Together Foundation was really, really formative in that conversation. And I don't think that can ever be taken away from those royals because they did an incredible thing there. And they took one of the most buttered up institutions we have and just started talking and events and, and awareness. And, you know, they, they did the whole marathon for mental health, I think the following year. And they did so much stuff and they still do brilliant work there, but that was transformational. And I actually left university I'd run a mental health organization at university. Then I left university and came back to Cornwall and, and ran Invictus for a year or so whilst deciding like what I wanted to do and really put some efforts into some campaigning that we wanted to get done. And it was around that time that that was all kicking off. And then I actually went to London to work for a national mental health charity for Young Minds and they were part of Heads Together. And it was such an exciting thing. I was so impressed. And it's easy to be quite cynical when you work in any issue, I think. And you're putting in the groundwork. You know, I've been down in Cornwall working on this campaign to build a mental health unit for young people. And they were being failed and they were being forgotten. And it was tiresome to see politicians like pat themselves on the back on the news for a mental health initiative. But something about the Royals partnership and, and Heads Together just felt so important. And it felt so real. Like, you know, they were saying, let's bring together loads of mental health charities and let's get all the expertise and let's get people working together because you don't need to compete as charities or as organisations because you want the same outcome. So let's do it. And, and they did an incredible thing there. It was truly amazing. I think that's so important what you just said. And I can relate to that with the whole, you know, women in business thing, that when there's like an overarching cause everyone's kind of going for the same goal and the support exists in silos. Everyone's shooting themselves in the foot, right? Instead of collaborating. And something like mental health is the best example. Mm. It's systemic, that problem. All over the globe, it needs to be collaborative effort. Yeah, definitely. And like the more we link up as well, like the more impact you have. Charities and organisations only have their audience, right? Like it's hard for a mental health charity to appeal across a wider audience. So they look for partnerships. They look for, you know, TV channels that are willing to take on campaigns. They look for magazines. They look for brands. They look, you know, for other people who could reach those hard to reach audiences. And the more, you know, that heads together got everybody working together, just the more impact it had. And every time the royals front something, you know, the press turn up. And that's what you need. And it actually led to some real changes in the way the press spoke about mental health at that time. And you had some of the kind of worst culprits there for really sensationalising mental illness stories and, and some really careless reporting previously. And having to think about it because... The royal teams were not going to let them put out careless reports. So they had to, like, toe the line. And I'm, I'm not saying that it solved the problem because the press today are still a massive problem, you know, around mental health. We've but, seen that recently. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, they pile on in so many ways that influence people's mental health. But there are pockets of reporting that's actually really powerful and constructive and reaches audiences in a way that a mental health charity just couldn't. And I think when I went from a family-run charity where nobody took a salary, nobody spent anything on anything other than the outcomes, to a national charity where you have costs and salaries and people are competing for funding, you know, with other charities, that was a real culture shock to me because to me it was just all about the issue. It was nothing to do with politics or bureaucracy or funding. And I was always a bit surprised how the relationships between charities could be quite sticky. You know, they felt like that person is on my patch or they're doing this or, God, that campaign's shallow, they should have done this. And 
And I think if it's constructive and you're pushing each other to do better, there's a power in that. But if you're just internally fighting, and like you said, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot, you forget that there's a bigger battle here and that you're actually working towards something. You know, you're all contributing to that change. Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like, it's so interesting to hear charities have that as well, because it's such like Mm. a, that kind of competitive comparison culture thing. It's like everywhere, right? When we met, like you said, am I right in thinking you were working at Bristol Uni? UE, yes, the University of West of England. So the other university just in the north of Bristol. Yeah. Okay, so what was it then? So Working Well came about in 2019? Yeah. Crikey, it's hard now, isn't it? I kind of crossed 2020 out in my head. <laughs> yeah, 2019. Yeah, so in the summer of 2019, I was approached for some contracts that I started to work on. And in November of 2019, I left my full-time job and took a leap to a full-time Amazing. So... I'm really interested then in that process because that kind of leap to full time running a business, Mm. big step. Yeah. (laughs) How did you, you said you obviously approached for those contracts. Did Mm. they just come out of nowhere or did you put kind of signposts out saying hello over here? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, yeah, no, it was actually quite organic for me because because of that past piece. So I'd been the Invictus trustee now for 10 years. And then, you know, at university, I ran a student minds campaign and then I went on to work for Young Minds and then I was working at university. So I already had, you know, all of this is in the mental health space and that's a relatively small space, I would say. And in Cornwall particularly, which is where I'm from and where Invictus is run, you know, it's a small county with lots of links. And that kind of like, at the time, eight or nine years of Invictus had led us to be quite established in Cornwall and involved in a lot of different things and my parents particularly who are just incredible like in how they've done Invictus so that came through that actually being known already through Invictus we have always spoken at events and raised awareness and and we've done a lot with big kind of networks and organizations and then through that there was just kind of this opening up of where there were training needs for companies and networks and where there was funding available and they were approaching us saying you know do you know people like do you have trainers you would recommend and myself and my mum had trained as mental health first aid instructors years before, and we had been doing that through Invictus occasionally. So I was already a trainer in that sense, and my jobs had been a lot more policy and strategy focused. And then this opportunity came about for a training contract, which I thought sounded really exciting, and another one that was being talked about in Bristol. And again, I was approached asking, do I know somebody who would want to deliver mental health first aid? And I was thinking, well, I would, <laughs> but do I have the time? So I was trying to, I was trying to work it alongside my job and take annual leave and go off and train, but it's complicated to do that. And at the time it was hard as well for like tax reasons. And, you know, I wasn't really sure how that would balance. Plus my job was super, super demanding. So Mm. it just became like a natural decision of, I was in the very fortunate position. I do appreciate it's very fortunate to have those two contracts bubbling away and thinking, are they enough for me to take the jump? And I kind of felt like if this is without having fully pushed myself out there, then there's more to come. So maybe I should just trust that. Absolutely. And my whole thing was just try it for a year. Try it for a year and see. And if it's an absolute nightmare, then I'll go and get a job. (laughs) Yeah. No, I love that. I think there's something about a deadline that kind of really forces you to raise your game, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm really interested because of, for so many service-based businesses, when they're first starting, there's always an issue around pricing. So obviously you said that when you were working at Invictus, it wasn't, I mean, it's charity, so everything goes back. Sure. 
when you're on your own, it's a different ball game altogether. So how did you go about those initial conversations and how has your attitude or I guess that relationship with that conversation changed as the years have gone on? Such a difficult one. So bearing in mind now that I'm only like a year and a half into this journey. So I, I maybe I'll have a different answer in like a few years time. <laughs> You'll I'm be really in it. <laughs> For me at the start, the helpful thing is that mental health first aid is priced. It's priced by the national organization at what it is valued at. And I tried to use that as my guide, right? This is what the national organization value it at. I'm a good trainer, I'm experienced, but I'll offer, you know, a bit under that price to make myself competitive. And I did look at like, you know, other people's websites, what were they charging? But that was a minefield because when you come to mental health training, councils and school groups, you know, academy networks get lump funding and then they give out mental health training essentially for free. And that puts you in a really difficult position because someone can turn around and say, hang on, but if I, you know, live in that county, MHFA is like free. And it's not free. They've paid for it through funding, right? But it's free at the point of the consumer. So that was really difficult. And I had to just stick to my guns. This is what it's worth. I'm a good trainer. And this is what I'll charge. It got a lot trickier when I had to do bespoke training because suddenly it was like, oh, well, what do I charge for this? You know, <laughs> what do I charge for an hour? What do I charge for three hours? How much time goes into me preparing that? And trying to work that out was difficult. And then what got even harder is consultancy because you have to pick a day rate, you have to stick to it, and it can feel so ego-driven, like, oh, I think I'm worth this. And it's really hard because it's not a product, it's your services. You're offering, like, you know, I'll lend you my brain for a day. And that's really hard. And at those times, I just wish I had a services business, like, no, sorry, I wish I had, like, a product business, not a services business, because I was like, God, at least if I had, like, a product, I could be like, it's worth X, Y, Z. And people get that, don't they? Like, if you're yeah. having... I don't know, a plant pot, people know yeah. roughly that costs this. Okay, well, yeah. And then it's just so, I don't want to undermine the work that goes into running product-based mm. businesses, but that issue around pricing when it's service-based is just a different ball game. Exactly. And also because it's easy to find out what someone else is charging for a plant pot, but it's hard to find out what is a mental health consultant charging a business. And that changes based on the business, right? Like the size, the style, whether they're really corporate. The credibility. Want from you. Exactly. And what do their budgets look like? Like if you talk to a really small company and you come out with this astronomical figure, they're just never going to book you because they can't. As much as they might love you and want you, they can't. But then you could go to a massive corporate and come in way too low and not know that they've got all this money put aside and you've just not taken a very big slice of that. And that's the bit I think I really struggled with. And I really wanted to offer training and help as well to individuals or small businesses or charities and then not be really out of pocket. So I ended up doing dual pricing where I would have a different rate if you were you know, a charity or an individual. And I would have a different rate if I was approaching someone who was more corporate. Amazing. I love that so much. How quickly did things pick up or you know you had said that you had those two contracts to kind of dip your toes in the water and and off Mm. you go but once they were underway Mm. how did you go about getting the word out there especially as I quoted you in a post I wrote about a month ago because you are one of the women I immediately think of when I know that they're doing well they're making a positive impact they're making profit, but they're not using Instagram as their main marketing source. And I think it'd be really interesting to know how you get the word out there, firstly, and then 
your thoughts yeah. on navigating that space for those that do, given that that space, i.e. social media, it's also a massive part of the problem contributing to the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's so circular, isn't it? So firstly, how do I get the word out there? I use people, connections, networks, meeting people. And I, I think I'm lucky and unlucky. Okay, so I'm lucky in the sense that I've got quite a few years behind me as a campaigner working in that space. And I would say like maybe people can emulate that if they really want to work, for example, in diversity training. Maybe they try and hold down a diversity role first in business. And it's not essential, but maybe if you do that, you know, you get known in your space and you get to know your space but before it's your own business. So you're kind of on safe ground, right? I think my years as a policy manager, mental health and a campaign manager, and then running the strategy for a university, they were all really formative because I met so many people. And I was able, when I went self-employed, to kind of send off a couple of emails to like all my contacts before I closed down my work thing, just saying, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to be doing. If you ever want any help, just contact me. And I think that speaks to the wider thing of whatever you are doing, wherever you're going, there are potential people there who might want to work with you. And I mean, me and you is the perfect example from meeting at that conference and you were moderating the panel when I was on it. But like that created this whole thing where I didn't know about She Can, She Did and now I'm like the biggest fan. (laughs) Yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like Mm. sometimes you can be working on something and there'll be someone who's involved who you don't think is a very key player. But a couple of months or years, they might get back in touch and say, hey, I now work for such and such. Like, would you be interested? Well, it's exactly like Catherine and I used to work together. And did you go exactly. to uni with Catherine? Yeah, we were at the same uni and we met through like the newspaper and the union. And and then Catherine put together the conference and then, yeah, invited exactly. us. And it's then, like, such a weird world. I know. When she saw that I was doing something she can, she did. She messaged me like, oh, it's so cool to see that that bubbled up. And, you know, after that conference as well, I then did some other work for one of the management accountancy people who wanted videos and a little bit of training and I think that always really strikes me is like whenever you turn up to something and it's not about like putting on a front or feeling like you're being tested, but all of those people are like potential for you. And if you Mm. do a good job and you connect with people, then they'll hold you in mind. And the way I see it is pretty much every company could do with mental health awareness training. (laughs) So the potential there is always quite good, you know, like that someone might take that away, take it back to their business or move jobs, move roles, and then think of you. And that has always really helped me, really, really helped me. There's some people from my past working life who have popped into my inbox with opportunities and things. And it's amazing. And they're not even people that back then I worked that closely with, but I knew of them and they knew of me and that kind of work. And I think LinkedIn helps with that because it tells people where you're at now and they can be like, oh, you know, I think he does some stuff in this space. Let me just have a quick look. Yeah. And then that spirals so I do think that and I don't mean like cringy networking where you feel like you're you know put on the spot and it's uncomfortable but just always knowing that you are your own advert like you are advertising yourself 100% I remember at the the conference that we met just before I left I nipped into the ladies and someone had watched our panel and we ended up having like a 20 minute conversation just there in the news and it's just like it is so true you don't have to put on a face it's just kind of being open to yeah, just I guess I was going to say a really like cheesy holding space for those conversations. But I don't say phrases like that. I'm like, what, what is that? But that's what I mean. I mean, everyone knows what I mean. But also, I feel like men have been doing that for years. Like, 
business, you know, sometimes feels like an old boys club and certainly specific industries because it's the talk that goes on after the conference. It's the talk over the drink after the meeting. It's those connections. And I feel like sometimes as women, we don't think that that's very useful or like that that's like a bit of like a sleazy trick. Like, no, the point is I did a really good presentation. It's not the chat afterwards, but we're human beings. Oh my God, I live for the chat afterwards. (laughs) That's my favorite bit. But that's where business can be done really well because- Mm. It's human connection. Like if I meet you and we have a really great conversation and I think, cool, I really respect her. I love what she brings. I wonder if we could ever work together or just, you know, a few months down the line when I've got a talk and it links together mental health and women in business, you'd be the person I would ping an email to and say, hey, do you want to come and talk? It just is organic. And I think sometimes we forget that because networking can feel forced. Like, you know, when you go to a networking event and you're like, oh God, now I've got to sell myself. Brace yourself. (laughs) No, it's so, so true, everything you're saying. And was it a conscious decision to avoid having working well on Instagram? So that came about in a slightly different way. So yes, it was, and no, it wasn't. So I made a website for working well, and I had to have that for one of my contracts. So that was the specification. So I just whipped up this website, which actually could do with some more work. So please, nobody go and look at that. I put a Facebook page because the contacts that I had were also posting on Facebook and they had no one to link to. So I posted a Facebook page and I added some bits and bobs and I update it, you know, every so often. But it really is not like the seat of my business. And then the natural question came about is Instagram. And I have a really like up and down relationship with Instagram as it does everyone. I love it. I scroll it all day, every day. I run our charity accounts on Facebook and we used to have Twitter. I also run another project called Letters to a Love Stranger, which is based on Instagram. And then in the past, I used to do some work as like a micro-influencer. So I've had every relationship with Instagram. And my feeling was I could do really great mental health content, you know, shareable things, quotes, and gifts, and, and advice, genuine advice and, and useful things. And I was kind of all ready for that. And I was like, right, I'm going to do it. And then I didn't. I was busy. I was really, really busy. So I just didn't do it. And it got bumped to the bottom of my list and then I looked at other people who are really in that space as like mental health coaches and that's not really what I do like I work with businesses I don't really work one-on-one not at the moment I'm not a psychologist I'm not a psychotherapist that's not my background and I'm certainly not a life coach that's like a different career so I was like "Mm, actually they're kind of different people to me and there's a lot in that space right now and I see a lot of it And they're really competing for numbers, right? They're competing for shares and likes all day, every day. And I had this really honest chat with myself where I said, look, if it's dropping to the bottom of my list, there's a reason why it's not a priority for me. And the reason is that my business is not coming from there. You know, the people who run companies or HR departments or training departments who are making the decision whether to bring me in aren't looking for my Instagram. They just aren't. And at the moment, it is not a useful space for me, I don't feel, because I would spend a lot of time, and I know what I'm like as well, so I would really put in the work to make graphics and share content and be visible on stories and do all the things that I do over on the letters page already, and I'd be really conscious of it growing and the numbers, and yet, would it bring me any work? I I don't particularly think so. And I'm in the kind of lucky position where, you know, I'm connecting up with some really exciting work opportunities. And don't feel the need to explore that like one-to-one space at the moment. 
No, I'm really grateful for your honesty there. And I think it's it's just a really important point, I think, that I'm so keen to get out there is it has so many benefits, but if your business doesn't need it, you don't need to be on it. Absolutely. And there's such a pressure for it. And I remember when we did the panel talk, you know, so many people were saying in the comments, weren't they? Oh my goodness, you know, I spend all day every day on Instagram, but it hasn't actually bought me a single booking. And I feel like sometimes that makes us feel like ashamed or like embarrassed. But that's really good reflection. Like you would bring in a business coach and pay them loads of money to tell you that, that your sales aren't coming from there because your customer's not there. And when I sell mental health training to a corporate company, I need to speak to someone who runs the budget and who I pitch to them. And it's almost like business to business rather than to a wider audience of individual people who are like, oh, I like that piece of advice. That's a nice, you know, anxiety strategy. And there's just so much in that space. I just thought actually... I spend a long time competing with people who do very different things to me. And, you know, I already spend a lot of time on social media. So let's not add to that for now. <laughs> Absolutely. A huge thank you to Pleo for handing over your ad space to us. I'm Danielle Green, the friendly marketing consultant behind Green Creatives. I offer affordable and accessible marketing services for creative business owners who are ready to level up. These services include website creation, social media management and one-to-one coaching. My wider mission with Green Creatives is to remove all the noise that comes with marketing and help business owners see what it is, a tool to tell your story. If you're interested in working with me, you can find me on Instagram at Green Creatives that's G-R-E-E-N-E, or on my website, greencreatives.co.uk. You mentioned, obviously, you're talking to, like, the HR teams and mm. kind of the policymakers in the corporate space. Mm. How do you navigate the responsibility of those contracts and the fact that you are now representing your own company as opposed to doing this work under the banner of another company if you messed up at your old job they would come after amber they'd come after your company yeah exactly so when you're going in and doing these big workshops with really influential people Mm. does that sit well with you or or if you get nervous like how do you handle it I don't know if that was a very good question but hopefully there's something in there I know what you're getting at. I absolutely love it. So I'm one of those weird people. I've always loved public speaking. I just love it. I love the buzz. I love addressing an audience. And I'm also my own worst enemy because I'll write and prepare, but not that much. And then when I'm, I will if it's a training course, obviously it's a bit different. But if it's like a speech, I'll write, prepare. And then I, the worst thing I do is I adapt based on what I think the audience is responding to, which, you know, I'm a real people pleaser. Like if people are really nodding or like laughing along to something, I find myself kind of playing up to it. And then I think, all right, come on. You're not doing like a funny show. <laughs> yeah. Back to your notes. I think this is something sometimes that surprises people. It's like when I give training or when I give a talk, I do always add in a bit of humour and a bit of just human element because I enjoy that. I would never, you know, obviously coming from me, I would never belittle the seriousness of this subject. And when we talk about, you know, the really weighty parts and we talk about suicide prevention and we talk about the reality of what mental illness does and, and the effect it has on society and the effect stigma has, those things I deliver fully with respect and seriousness, of course I do. But when we're talking about looking after yourself and we're talking about proactive well-being, 
I just think the more you can get people's barriers down, the better. Like people come to this subject feeling a little bit nervous. They have their guard up. They either think you're going to be so left field and tell them, you know, more green juices, meditate for an hour every morning and, and you'll be okay. Or they think you're going to go really medical. And I think sometimes it just puts people at ease that you can have a little bit of light in this topic because actually looking after yourself day to day is a journey and it's about understanding yourself and it can be really enjoyable and it can also be really rubbish. So let's be real. And I think that does sometimes throw people. <laughs> and then that's when I, you know, I get into that comedy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but no, I do think she was fine. Like it's well-placed. But yeah, back to your question. I love it. I love presenting live. I do get nervous. Of course I do. I get really buzzy. I feel like I've had like a hundred energy drinks. That's the kind of sensation. I do some very deep breathing and then I go out and I give a talk. And what I try to tell myself is that this talk doesn't define your career. So if it really went awfully, oh well. It's one talk. And I think trying to put things in perspective is really important. Like if you do a training course and you don't think it really landed with those people, okay, like that happens. And it's horrible. I'm not suggesting, you know, that you don't have moments of utter self-doubt, but I try and reframe it. And there's a phrase that's like, either way, I'm okay. And I really love that. Like this next thing, you know, yeah, either way, I'm okay. So whatever happens in this next hour, it's going to be fine. And I'll come out the other side and I will be fine regardless. I always think like playing the so what game as well. It's kind of, Mm. but what if this happens? So what if it does? Like, so what if it does? So what if it does? It's just kind of, it really, it does take some of those often really kind of silly when you say them out loud. Like, you know, (laughs) I remember the first midweek mingle. My mouth was so dry. I had a sip of gin, <laughs> and my gums were going like that. <laughs> I, by the way, if anyone listening, I'm like, Amber's got a really attractive image of just my gums right now. <laughs> but he just acknowledged it, and I remember everyone laughed, and it's just like, and off we went. And I remember just I was laughing, and it was like, okay, and I'm at ease, like yeah. as opposed to just trying to like carry on with just I like know. these dry you just gums. Have to be human, and like yeah sometimes you feel nervousness from the audience because and you all know this as an audience member like sometimes you see and I find this when I see a young woman go up to talk I'm like clenching for her I'm like come on you can do this come on girl (laughs) yeah come on girl and particularly if she's following like a lot of men or a lot of older people I'm like you've got this and sometimes like breaking that ice and just acknowledging it like I had one time where I had to put the microphone back in the stand and my hand was shaking. And I didn't actually think I was particularly nervous. <laughs> but it looked like some kind of... shaky hands. Honestly, they've been like the pain of my life, Amber. But carry you on. just have to say it, don't you? You just have yeah. to be like, oh, wow, I'm obviously a little bit more nervous than I thought. I get a bit of a laugh and you just move on. Like, 100%. it's fine. But I do overanalyze a lot. So often my key thing is I'm not really super nervous before. And then afterwards, I am my own worst critic about going back it and thinking why did you go into detail there and that you, you spoke too much or you were too quick or whatever and I do that you know lying awake at night and rolling back through past talks I've given and being horrible to myself how do you is that still the case I mean I was gonna say how do you yeah. handle that or yeah of course I'm horrible to myself sometimes about things that I did early on in my career. I'm like, oh my God, like you gave that talk and you missed the brief and da da da. And I think through it. And then I have to genuinely like chime in. And this is a skill that I teach, which is about reframing. And if your nasty self voice is speaking, that you you talk over it. You think like, actually, no, I'm not going to let you have this one. That was fine. No one complained. You're just being harsh because you hold yourself to a high standard. 
and that's fine like I know in my life I love to do things to a high standard I don't like doing things halfway and I'm very focused on high achieving I always have been and I know that I will be harsh on myself I just have to try and back in and say actually it wasn't that much of a car crash it was fine and one of the things I'm not going to name the event because I don't want anyone who was there to now look back and think (laughs) oh that was rubbish but I spoke at an event where afterwards I was like why did you just deliver a training course when you should have done a keynote speech like I got the brief and the sense of the event wrong essentially and I kind of trained the audience rather than a speech which is a different they're a different product and afterwards I thought oh god like (laughs) that was awful and you know it, it didn't get I wasn't getting like the response from the room like I would have wanted but then afterwards that company booked me for like three other things And I still beat myself up about that talk. And I have to remind myself, like, that led to work. So it clearly wasn't that bad. But we're harsh on ourselves. We really Mm. are. And we talk to ourselves in ways that I don't think we would talk to a friend or a a sister or anyone else, really. And I think you have to chime in and (laughs) not to kind of encourage you to have a full self monologue. But we do, don't we? And you have to kind of talk over that. A hundred percent. I think the past year has been the best thing for me for that very reason. Mm. And just learning to just acknowledge what you've achieved. Do you know what I mean? And just really put things in perspective and also slow down a bit and kind of Mm. listen to your body more and all of the like cliche things that everyone tells you to do. But actually really this year is like, oh no, this is why you should do them. Do you know what I mean? It's just, this is why people have an extra hour in bed if they need it. Like, it's like, oh, it actually helps. Like, who knew? (laughs) Who knew? All these people spouting this well. (laughs) Like this year for me as well, I started the business full time in November 2019. And then the pandemic, like by March 2020, we were like going into lockdown. And, you know, in a private capacity, me and my partner had bought our first house. And that was a month before I set up working well full time. So everything had happened really quickly and life felt like very fast at that point it was a big job I left setting up my company was a big thing buying a house was a big thing we'd got a dog everything was a big thing and then going into lockdown in early 2020 actually was like oh whoa everything's off but we were incredibly lucky and I do think privilege played a big part in your experience of lockdown and I think that's like a whole other conversation but We were very privileged that actually the year that unfolded for us was a year in our new house, really enjoying it and being so grateful for our space and getting to do all the little things, you know, pottering around and and really thinking like you're an interiors guru (laughs) and trying a bit of gardening, not so much guru, but also like almost like a year of slow living, really redressing balances and I think as a first proper year of business, I know by that point I was like six months in or whatever, but as a proper first full year, like what an unusual time to do that. I felt like I had so much time, which is just so strange because I'd spent years in these jobs where actually it was like, go, 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 go. What's next? What's next? What's next? And I never even thought ahead. And we did also get really poorly. So our year of lockdown was hampered by that. And having COVID and then having long COVID was like a reminder as well. Like your health is not guaranteed. Yeah, you're not invincible. You're young and healthy. Yeah, you think you're invincible. And actually, you're not. And something like this virus can knock you and reshape how much you can do physically, how much you can actually do. And that was a bit of a shocker to me. So all of that's just been like an, a really unusual year. <laughs> it's really interesting though. Like I'm just trying to think about how 
having that experience so early on in the kind of full-time part of running a business it is in many ways so good I mean good if you know all the other shit that's come with the pandemic didn't happen but like it's such a valuable lesson to learn that so early on that as the world reopens you have very clear kind of guidelines of what good boundaries look like and like what actually you enjoyed so that when things do start picking up again you can go hang on a minute my business was doing well and I was working at a much slower pace I wanted to talk to you about given what you were just saying looking after yourself and stuff about in general what self-care looks like for you because I think as a business owner it's such a important topic Mm. I'm also aware that there's an added layer of the fact that running any business is tough but then Mm. adding the extra layer of the fact that day in day out the nature of what you're discussing and the work you're doing that's weighty that's heavy so how you look after yourself basically yeah I think um, in terms of like the content of my work I've really made a conscious move with working well I don't really bring my story into it and this was a really conscious thing because through all our work with Invictus, we tell our story, right? It's in Ben's memory. We tell our story. People ask about it. People contact us with tragically similar stories, unfortunately, you know, so much and, and so much recently. And that's a big burden. And my parents particularly take a lot of that. You know, they're in contact with parents in similar situations. or And that's really difficult. And it takes a lot out of you. And I kind of made the decision when I was going self-employed and I was going to run my own company that it would be off the basis of my expertise as a trainer and to trust in that. Like I have learned over the last now 10 years, which just sounds bizarre to me, but 10 years of being in the mental health field and I do know my stuff. And I think there's such a value in coming to a career because you have a personal reason for it and a passion and there's a a fire in you that burns around that topic. And that will never go away for me. And I will always tell my story when I feel like I want to and it's relevant and it's context. But in a day-to-day training course environment or working with a corporate, I didn't want to have to do that. I felt like, no, I want them to employ me because they think I'm great. I think I'm great at training and they think I know my stuff. And that was a really conscious choice of self-protection for me. Like, if I'm going to make this my business now for, you know, however many years, it's got to work for me. And for me, I need to have that distance. I need to be able to have my professional self. And I think that's really worked quite well so far. I mean, people still like watch talks I've given and, and, you know, look at my past work and that's fine. Like it's no secret, you know, it's not that you can't know that. It's just that I will not open a training course with that. I try not to make any of my training or consultancy about me. It's about the client. You know, you don't need a story to be good at something. So I think you know, I try and do that. And that's actually, for me, a big act of self-care. I think as well, you know, self-care gets a really bad name because people think it's shallow. People think it's self-indulgent. People think of like bubble baths and yoga retreats and and also like scoring points on some kind of wellness scorecard. You know, I do this, and I do this and I do this, like well done me. And none of those things are actually indicators of a good relationship with yourself. I'm not suggesting you don't do those things. Like they're healthy behaviors and they're lovely, but a truly healthy behavior is what you need in that moment and sometimes self-care is really unglamorous right it's not the nice things it's the drawing of boundaries you know knowing when you need to go to sleep and have more sleep it's prioritizing that sometimes it's lying down and having a nap and doing nothing and sometimes it's navigating a really difficult relationship or making a decision like I just said where you say actually that doesn't work for me that takes too much of my energy I need to do that differently so I think like 
I try and build my work schedule and how I work with those principles in mind of like primarily I want to look after myself and I want to feel good and then in terms of like the lifestyle behaviors you know I know that exercise is really important to me so I make time for it and I try to see it as like a you know a really positive value add rather than like a punishment or a regime or whatever Mm -hmm. and I've had to really reframe that as well since long COVID because physically I just couldn't do what I could do before and I had to come to terms with that no that's it so I still need to have an antibody test but we think that I had it in March which is really bad because of the London mingle but I didn't really know until afterwards but anyway you were a super spreader (laughs) (laughs) so bad isn't it but my dad had it in late March really badly and then I had this rash that appeared and didn't go and all year last year I was thinking like is it stress like what is this it was mad but anyway like at the end of last year that all these reports started coming out about the actual physical symptoms mm. about the skin and everything but also my energy I normally run and again I was putting it down to like is this stress from building the platform it's probably that as well but just just had no energy and I'd be going out on runs and just literally I'd get down the road and have to start walking I was like what is wrong with me what is going on and it's that literally that conversation of going don't push yourself listen to your body telling you something here like stop it and it's that minute you do that it's like ah no this is good yeah and I think I've always had that mentality particularly when it comes to exercise of like you know when you hit a wall like you push through because that's what you're here for But actually, when you've been ill or your energy levels are struggling, you know, you just have to think, like you said, my body is telling me something here and it would not be wise. I mean, at some points, it wasn't even possible for me to push on through that. So I had to really reframe that. But it also made me really realize that actually exercise gives me a lot. Like it gives me headspace. It does make me feel really good and the right kinds of exercise for me. And part of that is dance. And I love music. I think music has such an effect on me. Like if I want to lift my mood, I want to concentrate. I use music. What's your go-to song? Oh, always Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if I need to get like fired up. I mean, yeah, come on. Love that. <laughs> but do you know, like I have playlists for everything. Yeah, hundred percent. I have like it's just so varied. But you know, Matilda, the yeah. musical. There's a song <laughs> called Naughty that I listen to when I need a little self belief, and then you can't be a bit of Eminem. I mean, oh. like yeah, no, seriously. And I was actually I was reading Obama's book the other day. And he used to listen to Lose Yourself in the car on the way to his campaign speeches. And it was Eminem who got lost in. And I know everyone listens to that song and gets motivated. But I was like, oh, another reason why I just, I love him. (laughs) You're like me and Obama. We are just on the same page. I'm like, we basically (laughs) to meet. Like, yeah, I adore the guy. So much in common. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Yeah, no, I'm so with you on that. Music's so powerful. And have you, any of your relationships evolved as you've launched a business, for the better or worse? Any faded away? Any got stronger? Um, I don't know. I think because I'm only a year and a half in and because of COVID, it's hard to know because we've not been able to see anyone. That's so true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do... This is actually partly through joining in with She Had She Did and going to like virtual events and the chat and stuff was I hadn't realised that there are elements of like the workplace I do really miss. And it's not, you know, enough that it would make me think, you know, oh, I would like to change this. It's just like little things, you know, like that daily 
water cooler chat start, I know that's like a cliched phrase but you know what I mean like the chat not about work <laughs> oh my god the the water cooler was always the place though right like <laughs> it's like you had the best conversations at that thing yeah absolutely and like pretending that you're really drinking that much water you yeah for like half an hour <laughs> You know, my day doesn't consist of like checking in with people on Zoom calls necessarily or, you know, stuff that other people were doing loads of and maybe getting really fatigued. And I have like check-ins with projects and clients. That's very different. You know, you have to kind of show up and you're presenting and it's not like, oh, hey, like, how was your weekend? What are you watching on Netflix? <laughs> so I did. Yeah, I have had moments where there were people that like I just interact with almost daily, but I probably haven't stayed in close contact with since leaving. And maybe I, you know, that's a little bit of a shame. And maybe I will try and rebuild that when we're back in like the normal world. But virtual contact with people I do find strange because unless they were really close friends of yours before, it's an odd time to try and build relationships. And I really feel for people who, you know, are in a new place or are dating online or, you know, are trying to build relationships digitally because I think it's really hard. Mm. And I don't envy that, I must admit. Yeah, no, I'm so, so with you on that. It is interesting though, and I'm sure you can relate with the fact that you have the Love Letter series as well, but the hopeless romantic in me does love the idea of people meeting in this time and the stories they'll tell their grandkids I'm just like oh yeah I read a really interesting feature in an online magazine thing and they were talking about how like they'd met and then lockdown was like two weeks later and this couple decided they'll just move in together and see if it works and I was like no oh my gosh wow and they're together they've stayed together they think like if they've got through this then they'll get through anything because it will never be this intense again it is true. Like, C and I have had that conversation quite a lot because we met in, my best friend set us up in July 2019, but, like, we didn't get together. I was really adamant that I still needed to be single. And then we got together in September 2019. Mm-hmm. And the minute I was like, game on. He's Like, it was just so crazy. But then, obviously, the pandemic, so about six months in, but he moved in then. But we've said this, anyway, I'm rambling, no one needs to know. Oh, wait, this, did, it, did like, he move in knowing it was going to be lockdown? No, no, he moved in in the February, okay. early March. And then got and locked then, in. then we're in <laughs> lockdown. But, and it's so funny, our parents are saying, his mum and my mum were like, you know, is everything going all right? Like, are you both okay? Like, you want to talk? <laughs> and we were both like, no, we're actually fine. Like, it is so interesting. We both said that, like, this is a quite a cool test, but... Anyway, I'm rambling. <laughs> You've weaved quite a few bits in quite naturally, but I'm really interested. What does a bad day on the job look like? Or what's the biggest challenge that you've faced being your own boss so far? Um, it's a bad day on the job for me. There are days when I find self-doubt is big. You know, I can pick apart my own work or lose energy with it and, and question particularly as a trainer, question my training style, question everything if I need to, to be honest. And I think some days I just wake up and because it's all on me, like how I structure my day, what I do, how much energy I put into something. And you don't have, you know, like when you're in a job or you're in an office, there's quite a lot that's kind of like scheduled for you and routine stuff that you just do. And you, I don't think you always realize in a job those days you have where you're really unmotivated because you just kind of carry on And you bumble through like the routine stuff. But when you're on your own, you know, you're at home. I am, you know, at home and running your own business and it's all of your own making. You can have days where you just 
I certainly do, but I just tumble into like self-doubt, lack of motivation, and then question things. And I just get inside my head and I'm rubbish, quite frankly. I would fire myself if I, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but no, like that happens. I have days like that. And I also have had days where I've had really negotiations about a contract I've had contracts that have carried on for a while and right at the start I had a contract that carried on for a while that caused me a lot of stress and that was really tough and I really leaned on my mum in that time actually and it sounds almost like a childish thing like I called my mum but she's like my business role model and I rang her and said like how would you cope with this am I being unreasonable here because this client has really got inside my head and they're causing me a lot of stress mm-hmm. A particularly low point for me early on, and I think this will resonate with people who are trainers, their product is essentially their own knowledge, was I didn't contractually protect myself well enough. And when a contract came to an end, my content was taken by that client and there were some problems there. And I am fully aware that other training organizations use some of my content. That really hurt me. Like I was I was gutted and I felt like I'd been really naive and you know, why hadn't I written a tighter contract and how do you protect content and how do you stop people doing that? Because ultimately, once you've trained that course, anyone who is on that course has the ability to take photos on the phone of your slides. And, you know, sometimes companies ask you, can we have the slides? And you're thinking, hang on, but that's my business. They're my assets, to be honest. And that's really hard. And I got inside my head about that for quite a while because it was such an early stage. I just felt like I'd failed. I was like, oh my goodness. And it was talking to a friend of mine who was a lawyer, actually. And she was so useful in saying to me, you've got to question what is in that training course that someone else can't write. And it's not that. It's that you are delivering it. So remember that you are an asset as well. And people can always steal content and take content and don't see it as stealing. You can always have fresh ideas. You're improving on that content all the time so actually it's not a static thing where someone takes that and it's gone from you that's not how it works and actually it just showed me that I didn't want to work with that client because that was Mm. such a negative relationship that's such an important point there though that when you hold the reins it's not just the client that you're trying to impress they have to impress you as well you have every right to say actually I don't want to work with you you know And that's really tough early on because first you need to pay your bills. So the contracts you have, you feel like you have to do them and work hard at them. And secondly, you know, you are really worried about your reputation and you're really worried that this will impact you. But I had to learn that actually sometimes projects and clients and contracts cause you far more stress than the money they're paying you. Like it's not worth it. And a big part of that, I think, is trying to put money away and make sure you are secure so that you can turn things down because that's a luxury, but it's important for your own like peace of mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. And on the flip side then, so that we end on a high, <laughs> what makes it all worth it? You know, what are you most proud of? Oh, I love so many aspects of it. I love being able to design my own diary. Like every day to me, it's up to me. And if I want to take an afternoon off or I want to start later or whatever, everything's varied. And I love that. I love being able to literally design each day and design each week and create my own balance. And balance for me this year has just been so different to what I even thought it could be. Like work-life balance is so in your gift when you're your own manager and you're your own business owner and I think we do have to remember that like that's an amazing benefit and I think sometimes people get sucked into like oh I have to work all hours of the day because I run my own business 
But for me, that's not worth it because one of the main reasons I wanted to do this was to reclaim my time and design my own lifestyle. And I know those things sound so cliche, but I genuinely have done that. Like when I look back at the year, I'm like, oh my God, how many afternoons have I just enjoyed the sun or done this or, you know, delivered this amazing training course that I'm really proud of and then chilled out. It doesn't have to be this rat race. That's so exciting and such an amazing part of it all. And the big thing for me is seeing that I've actually made an impact, you know, having positive feedback, having businesses make changes because of things I've said. And when I train mental health first aid, it's an incredible course. And I sometimes open up public courses for people to come on. And sometimes you hear down the line, I had someone get in contact recently who said, after I did that training with you, I ended up intervening with someone I was really worried about. And I ended up doing this and this and this, which you trained me to do. And then, you know, this was the really positive outcome. I mean, it was incredible because this person was so brave. You know, that was not my training. That was their bravery. But it was so incredible to think, wow, like these things I'm putting out there are actually having an effect. And I can't ask for anything more than that. Mm, I love that so, so much. And it's, yeah, it's just such important work that you're doing. Thank you. And I not knowing you too long but just know that how like suited you are for it I think yeah just super in awe I always end with some statements so I'll start them and I would like you to finish please Amber okay number one being my own boss means designing my day my week and what work-life balance looks like for me absolutely when it's not quite going to plan my advice would be to get out of your own head go and do something else get some fresh air get some perspective and come back to it back at another time. Absolutely. If I could describe myself as a businesswoman, I'd say that I am. Uh, on a learning curve. I, I would say that. that I'm knowledgeable and I, I know stuff and I'm confident in my expertise, but I am very much learning like who I am when it comes to financial negotiations and contracts and management side of the business total learning curve and I have to hold my hands up and be comfortable with being like a complete beginner absolutely and I don't think that ever goes away right like or at least I kind of sort of hope that it doesn't I hope (laughs) no but I really feel like I'm this year especially there's just so much to learn yeah and I loved hearing from you actually about how like you were looking for investment weren't you and you were in front of investors and that experience because that would be something that for me would be really far out of my comfort zone and then I think it's so interesting like to find those situations where you just have to be really comfortable with being uncomfortable and I know we have to do our kind of like you know it's okay either way kind of thing but they feel like massive challenges at the time Mm. and yeah, I, there's a lot of situations like that for me. I mean, even things like taxes and accounts, I'm like, oh, whoa, hello. Spreadsheets, <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Oh, don't, it's the worst. <laughs> if I could go back to day one of my business, I'd tell myself. You're going to have the most bizarre year ever. <laughs> here comes a global pandemic. <laughs> you know, brace yourself. Yeah, literally, I think I would say brace yourself, but like, you're going to be fine. Yeah, absolutely. And I want my legacy to be that. I want my legacy to be that I've increased mental health awareness and changed other people's work cultures for the better. I can't say it kind of clearer than that, really. Um, but that was so good. I am so grateful. Oh, thank you. And who knew you could have like a really decent chat on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I'm like switching <laughs> off, like ready for the weekend. But yeah. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's literally such a lovely thing to be doing.
thank you so much to Plio once again for sponsoring this episode and for going that extra bit further to support female business owners by handing over the mic to our amazing members during this episode's ad space. As one of their 15,000 customers, I know full well we're in safe hands with this one. It really is a game changer for how we manage expenses. So I highly recommend taking advantage of their special offer for She Can, She Did listeners and seeing for yourself what all the fuss is about. Get your first three months free by heading to plio.io now and make sure to mention the She Can, She Did podcast on your demo. The link's in the show notes now. I cannot wait to hear what you think. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you happen to enjoy it, please do feel free to subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, etc, etc. I'm sure you know how it works by now, but it really does help to give the series a little boost. And I, for one, would be so unbelievably grateful. For now, though, have a lovely day and please do keep a lookout for next week's episode. (laughs) 